Then Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, To find favor in your sight, the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, No, please, if now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand. For I see your face as one who, as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us take our journey and go, and I will be before you. I will go before you. And he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard, driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure, according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. Esau said, Please, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in your sight, in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Succoth. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. When he came from Padam Aram and camped before the city, he bought a piece of land where he pitched his tent from the land of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we've come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the strength and power of your Spirit. And we do ask that you would bless our hearing of the Word of God this morning. We have already read your Word, its infallibility, in, in its infallible form. We pray now that you would help us to hear a true exposition of this text. And Lord, though it may be difficult in certain passages to understand and comprehend, we pray that we would, by your Spirit, get the true sense of what you are intending to communicate to your people. Be with us now, for Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, good morning again. And we come to the 33rd chapter of the book of Genesis. Jacob has just met with God after grappling with God all night long, if you remember. One second here. And now, Jacob has a new name. 
and Jacob has a new limp. He's no longer Jacob. He will now be called Israel. And yet, if you've noticed, especially in this past chapter that we've just read, the 33rd chapter, not once in the entire 33rd chapter is Jacob named Israel or called Israel. He's named Israel, but he's not called Israel in the entire chapter. Over and over again, he is referred to as Jacob. It was not because his encounter with the Lord the night before did not really happen. His new limp is evidence that the grappling match was not a dream. Israel will continue to be referred to as Jacob, but he has not been fully and finally perfected. This is important. We may think that he's called Jacob because he's still the swindler. Therefore, he will not be called Jacob But he is actually Israel. And there will be times when he acts like old Jacob. The saints of God, you and I, we are saints of God. And yet there will be times when we will show more often than we would like to admit the remnants, the remainings of that old sinner that we used to be. Does not change the fact that you are still a saint of God, though. And it did not change the fact that Jacob was truly Israel. He has met with God, just as you who have placed your faith in Christ, just as you have met with God. And he's now on the verge of meeting his estranged brother Esau. And the chapter seems, as we discussed last week, to slow down so that we might take out our view masters, if you remember turn them towards the light and get a good, long, clear look at this marvelous picture of reconciliation. These two men have, they've not seen each other's face for 20 years because of an offense. Listen, not an offense on the part of the believer or of the unbeliever. It was the believer's offense that has caused the separation, not the unbeliever's offense. And the Lord brings these two who have been separated because of an offense. He brings them back together so that what was broken might be repaired. This morning, with God's help, I would like to consider with three points how this reconciliation was made and what we might possibly learn about our own lives and our own making those broken relationships that are wrong right for the glory of God. Let us begin then with number one, Jacob's transformation. This is verses one through three, and I've read them already, so I'm not going to read them again. But Jacob has literally not even been given the chance to catch his breath. No sooner than he walks away limping from this grappling match with God that he lifts up his his eyes and sees Esau, the one whom he has offended, approaching him with 400 men with a small militia of men. And there's something different about the eyes of Jacob, though. His eyes have just seen God. The Bible says that he has seen the face of God. He has encountered a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. 
This encounter with God has changed him so dramatically that that which he feared before his encounter with God, he no longer fears. Esau, whom he prayed to the Lord, save me from Esau. Once he's met with the Lord, he seems to no longer fear whatever Esau might do to him. You know well that before his encounter with God, he's a man full of fear and full of distress at the prospect of meeting with his hot-headed brother. And in that fearful condition, he cries out to the Lord, help me. He says, you've been kind to me. You've been gracious to me. And by the way, Lord, you're the one who told me to go back home. Therefore, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. Brothers and sisters, when Esau prayed this prayer of fear and distress, what was God's response to Jacob's prayer? Did God immediately come to Jacob and ease all of his fears and all of his worries? No, he did not. God did not immediately answer Jacob, at least not not right away. And when the response does come, because the response of God does actually come to Jacob, it comes in a way that Jacob could have never and would have never anticipated. Imagine, you call out to the Lord and you ask for, for peace in the midst of your distress. And the way that God answers Jacob's prayer is often the way that God answers all of our prayers, By putting us in what we seem to be in the midst of of more attack. Jacob is waiting for a prayer and here's your answer, Jacob. A rear naked choke. He begins to grapple with Jacob. For those of you who don't know anything about it, that's a wrestling grappling. He begins to choke him. He begins to grapple with him. He begins to wrestle with Jacob. And doesn't that seem the same with you and I sometimes when we call out to the Lord and we are asking for some kind of ease from our distress, some kind of relief from all of our worries? It seems that sometimes the response is not relief, but more worry, more distress, more things for us to worry about. Why, Lord, would you, when I am asking for peace, give me more stress? You might know that song that we sing often, I ask the Lord that I might grow. And what was his response? He gives to me more distress. Why? Because it is God's way of causing us to rely not on ourselves or even on the circumstances, but on him who gives us peace through whatever circumstance comes our way. The response was not comfort. It was wrestling and it was through the grappling match that Jacob would get his response he would learn that he should not fear man who can only kill the body but he should fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell he learned that all of this time all of these years that he's been trying to to reach and strive for that blessing That all of the wrestling matches that he has had all of his life, they've not been with Esau. They've not been with Laban. They've not been with Leah. They've been with God. Jacob has been wrestling God all of this time. He's been resisting God. He's been trying to snatch a blessing away, not from Esau, but from God. 
Jacob also learned that he is truly not the same. It was not that Jacob was only converted the night when he had contended or wrestled with God. No, he was, he was converted 20 years earlier at Bethel. And sometimes we wonder, did it just happen yesterday that I was saved? There, there are those moments, aren't there, when we will have uh, pivotal times in our lives when it seems as though I think maybe yesterday was, very the, was the very first time I may have been saved because of the experience that I had. But as Jacob is preparing to go back home, he is going back home with a new perspective of who he is, yes, a new walk in his physical life. But he is, being, he is now certain that he is not alone, that God is and always has been with him. That's a process of sanctification. It's what we all experience on this road. The night that Jacob wrestled with God was, again, one of those pivotal moments in Jacob's walk with God. It was one of those moments, if you will, that, that all of us will experience. It is one of those great mountains that every single believer must climb on their way up Zion's hill. Every single one of us. And sometimes, let me say to you, and more often than not, the mountains ahead of us seem to be steeper than the mountains behind us. It seems sometimes as though the mountains that we climb that are ahead of us seem to be more difficult than the ones that have gone behind us. And why? Because God is making you holy. Because God is not content with just making you saved. He must make you holy. You must surely know, if you've been walking with God for any length of time, that there are moments in your pilgrimage when your stride will be a stride with ease and you will say, this is easy. Life is good now. And then there will be those times when it seems as though you can barely put one foot in front of the other. It is in those sore and difficult times. It is in those stressful and fearful times. That you might feel like you are in a grappling match where, wherein your own life is at stake. How are you still here, I wonder? Do you ever ask yourself that? How in the world am I still here? My son and I, every now and then, we like to, to go and explore. And there are certain mountains, and I'm uh, notorious for this, certain mountains that I would like to climb and then get to the top and, and look over all of the all of the things that are below us, but then also look back and say, that's how far we've climbed. And I can remember a time when I was climbing with my son and, and we finally reached at least the top of a place that we were in mountain, mountain rise. And I said to him, look, now look back. And he looked back and saw how steep and how far he had come. And he says, are we on top of the world? Said, no. And I pointed to the distance and said, there's, there's even taller mountains. I remember his response one day was, can we go there? <laughs> well, brothers and sisters, you are going there. By faith, you are going there. By faith, you are climbing mountains and you are looking back and you are amazed at the grace that God has given you to scale the mountains that you have scaled, but you are not done yet. There are still more to climb. 
And God, by his grace, will give you times of ease. But God will not leave you in a life where your life is just easy. That's not the Christian life, is it? I think all of us confess that's not the Christian life. If you're living a life of of Christianity and everything is easy, I may wonder what kind of Christianity you're living. No, there will be more mountains to climb. And you will only be able to scale those mountains by the grace of God. And by being immovable in your faith in Him. Every single one of those mountains, you will remember. They leave an indelible mark on your soul, don't they? It is those marks that that you can't forget and they won't go away. They're scars, if you will, but they're good scars. They're scars of where sin used to be and now where, where holiness has been replaced with. God has confirmed for Jacob that he was no longer the deceiving heel grabber that he used to be but rather that he has prevailed or contended with God and he will prevail with man. He's been given a new name. Oh, praise God for the new name that we have in Christ. We are the righteousness of God. We are the saints of God. You are no longer who you used to be. And you have a new name, a new walk to to commemorate this transformation. This is what happens when a man is radically changed. You have a new name, a new identity. And as we come to this 33rd chapter, we see that it is not just Jacob's name that has been changed. It's not just his physical walk that has been changed. Jacob has been changed from the inside out. He does this by, if you, if you remember in the 32nd chapter, he sends all of his family ahead of him to be kind of a buffer between him and, and Esau. But as he sees Esau, he walks and passes by every single one of his family members and comes to the very front of them and saying, essentially, I put myself in harm's way. Jacob has gone from sending all of the children to the front row, to the front line, if you will, to putting himself now at the front line. And as he does, it's not just one bow that he gives. It's seven times a bow. And it's not just a normal bow. It's a prostrate bow. It's one of those bows where he is face down on the ground, all of his body laying down before his brother as if to say, I surrender, I submit, you are greater than I am. Amazing, isn't that? That he would show that kind of submission and that kind of humility when all of the time before his interactions with his brother He was constantly trying to take authority from his brother, constantly trying to take the birthright from his brother to show that he was the prominent one. And now here he is 20 years later laying down face down and saying, no, brother, you are the prominent one. As Jacob comes near, lays down again and rises, lays down again and rises, lays down and so on and so on. Why is it so important? Again, He has tried to steal the blessing from his brother Esau. And now he is bowing before Esau. You remember the blessing that that Isaac gave, who he thought he was giving to Esau. He says to Esau, or whom he thought was Esau in, in Genesis 27, may people serve you. May nations bow down to you. Be master, he says, of your brothers. And may your sons, mother's sons bow down to you. Jacob remembered these words. How could he forget them? And now here he is, 
bowing down to the one who he has stole the blessing from. It is a sign, and it becomes a visual picture in the minds, in our minds, of how dramatically Jacob has become or, or, or gone from grasping and stealing to now humbling himself before his brother Esau. The word that is on his lips, most all throughout this chapter is grace. Grace has been shown to me. Favor has been shown to me. Why all of these things? Because God has been merciful to me. Because God has been gracious to me. He has somehow become a man who is living in some way. Living the whole life uh, in the context of his sense of his need for God's grace. Do you live that way? That all of your life is need in the sense that I, I cannot take another step unless God's grace be with me. But he's also living every step of his life, and at least in this moment, with the understanding that he also needs the graciousness of the one whom he has sinned against. He is living by God's grace, but he is also asking for graciousness from the one whom he has sinned against. He is altogether a different man, isn't he? The man who says, I will take all that I want, now bows down and gives all that he has. Brothers and sisters, what is the most common characteristic that must be found in every true believer? What's the most common characteristic? Someone might say, well, love. Love is the most common characteristic that should be found in a believer. And you would be correct. The believer begins to love in ways that they have never loved before. I might ask you another question. Why does the believer love in such a profoundly new way? And my response would be, it is because he realizes that he has been loved in a profoundly otherworldly kind of way. In a way that he or she never deserved. That he or she has been loved in a way that they are unworthy of being loved. And they know that about themselves. You know yourself. You know who you are. You know what you have done. And to receive a gracious love from God should cause any believer to say, I am unworthy of the grace and the mercy that has been shown to me. Therefore, humility, humility is one of the most common characteristics or fruits that should be pouring out or evident in the believer's life. Humility because of the great love that you've been shown. What is humility? Let me tell you what it's not. It's not telling everybody that you're humble. Never believe a person who tells you that they're humble. Never believe the man or woman who says, I do all of these things because I'm just so humble. Jacob is doing what he is doing because he realizes that he is low. And he's been brought high by God. Why is he bringing himself low? Because he realizes that he is low. Seven times he brings himself low. And I, I, I would wager that if Esau did not interrupt his bowing, he would have kept bowing low just to show Esau, this is how low I am. But God has given me mercy. God has given me grace. 
These things I give to you, Esau, because they have been given to me, and I am unworthy. God has been so gracious to me, therefore take these things. Jacob, even though he has been truly named by God the heir of the birthright and blessing, he constantly demotes himself. Do you hear that word? It's a word that we don't really like in our culture, do we? Demoting myself. Because we are always seeking to somehow gain a promotion. Humility is bringing yourself low. It's acknowledging that you are, because you are, dust. It is living as though you have nothing. And everything that you do have has been given to the one, given by the one who is greater than all. Humility is a willingness to be the servant of everyone. Because you realize that you're not worthy of being served by anyone. Imagine tonight at our fellowship meal. If everybody was saying, I'll take your plate for you. I'll take your plate for you. I'll get you a drink. There's usually only one or two people, isn't there, that's walking around doing that. Shame on all of us, I think. It's because we prefer ourselves so much. But doesn't this sound familiar? Wasn't this the characteristic, this this humble characteristic, wasn't that most perfectly displayed by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? How so? Did not the eternal Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, bring himself low when he took on the very flesh that he created, becoming man like you and I? And did not the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, declare that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, to give his life as a gift, if you will, And it was the most perfect gift because by that gift, many sons will be brought to glory. Did not Christ go before all of his elect ones who were in danger of the wrath of God? Did he not go before all of them, stand before them and put on our sin and endure the wrath of God in our place? Yes, he did. Brothers and sisters, Jacob was a good example of humility, but not a perfect one. Only Christ is the perfect example of what humility really means, and we must strive to be that. We will at times be good examples of humility, but not consistent ones. Even the person who we would say, he's so humble, he's got some, she's got some inconsistent moments of of pride. All of us do. We must be examples of humility, even though we will be imperfect and inconsistent ones. There is only one who is perfectly consistent, and that that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And for all those who have grappled with God, you've been given a new name in Christ. You have been given and been made a new creation in Christ. You've been given a new walk in Christ. And one of those imperfect And inconsistent evidences of your transformation should be, must be, 
humility. Ask yourself, am I being humble right now? Or am I being ever so prideful? Your humility won't be perfect. It won't be consistent. But as we will see in the life of Jacob, you must continue to climb. It will be better for you today than it will be or was yesterday. But keep on climbing. Let us move on to the second point. Number two, Jacob seeking to repair what he had broken. This is verses 4 through 11. Brothers and sisters, when God says yes to a man, he recognizes that his principal task is to live a new life that is marked by, listen to this, marked by not just humility, but one of the ways that you show humility is by repairing any possible damage or any possible broken relationships that you have broken in your past. That is one of the great signs that you have been changed. When you go to those whom you have sinned against and say, please, forgive me for my sin and my offense against you. The scriptures are painting for us a picture that is remarkably moving. And would you notice it in your passage with me here? It's a picture of a man who knows that he has truly sinned against his brother. And he is doing all that he can to show that he is truly repented for what he has done. And then the Bible And he does this by giving gifts. He's giving gifts. He's passing before his family. He's bowing down to the ground. We get this picture, if you will, of the camera focused on Jacob. And the camera spans over to Esau. Esau, if you can imagine. This presumably large man. Red-headed, hairy, large man. A man of the field. He is a hunter by nature. But he's also a man who is emotional. You know those big teddy bears that you would be uh, hesitant to engage in a fight with them. But they are the softest men that you could ever imagine when their hearts have been pricked with a certain emotion. And here is this man. The camera begins to focus on Esau. Here is this large, red-headed, hairy hunter of a man. And he's seeing his brother lay down and stand and then lay down and then stand. And he cannot stand himself anymore. In his emotion, he is overcome. He does not even wait for Jacob to arrive. He runs to his brother. Imagine this big man running to his brother. After his brother is displaying all of this humility and desire to to repay what he has done, he runs to him. And I can imagine on that seventh bow, Esau, filled with tears, cannot contain himself. He picks his brother off the ground. I'm sure he could have picked. He picks him up and wraps him in his arms. And the two of them weep together. Is there someone in your life that you need to make a right relationship with like that? What a moment. Jacob's fears have been erased. His brother Esau has not come to wring his neck. But as the Bible says, to fall lovingly upon his neck with a loving embrace. His brother will not carry out the vengeance that he, that he swore those 20 years ago. His heart has been softened. He's forgiven his brother. And Jacob made the first steps, didn't he? 
Their relationship may have remained severed if Jacob would have not taken the first steps and been led by God to go back home and restore and make right what was wrong. Jacob made the first steps. Brothers and sisters, confrontation is difficult, isn't it? <laughs> That's a loudest amen I got in a minute. Coming to grips with the fact that you have wronged someone. Not making a defense of why you did it. Not giving all of the excuses of why you were right and, and why you're both wrong. But you just taking ownership sometimes. And saying, I did this. You don't even need to confess what you've done. I will say what I've done. I don't need to hear, you know, sometimes husbands and wives, do you want to say something to me? What? You want to tell me you're sorry? I'm sorry. Now your turn. I'm not going to say I'm sorry. Well, then I take my sorry back. You can't take your sorry. Yeah, right? Reconciliation does not happen when both people are waiting for the other one to apologize. Someone's got to be the, the mature adult. Someone's got to be the Christian. We can't walk away. You're just so immature. Be a Christian. What does God say? Do it then. We often would rather avoid this confrontation altogether. But let me tell you this. You can't say as a believer, I'm just keeping my eyes on Jesus. While at the same time, you disobey all of his commands. You and I do not get to decide or determine how or what keeping our eyes on Jesus means. Jesus tells us what keeping our eyes on Jesus means in his word. So the way that you know that you're keeping your eyes on Jesus is by how accurately and obediently you are obeying his word. We would rather, if you're like me, avoid this confrontation altogether. If you're like me, I would rather repent to God first and not even have to deal with that person. I said, I'm sorry. To, I, I made it right with God. But you've wronged someone and you bear the name of Christ. So therefore, you are marring the name of Christ if you who claim Christ don't make what was wrong right in the name of Christ, because Christ commands it. Jacob, what does he do? He gives 550 animals to Esau as a gift. Now listen to this closely. Why? The animals represented a step towards restitution. I hope some of you don't know what that word means. Jacob was giving what was required. It was his proper payment for his crime. Jacob was, in a sense, returning the blessing that he stole to Esau. But would you notice that there is not, when they interact, there is not one mention of the grievances that they've done in the past. They don't get together and say, now listen, listen, I, I know, uh, Esau, I stole from you, and, and I know I didn't do what was right. I know that I dressed up like you that one day and I, I really did do what was wrong. And Esau said, and, and I know, Jacob, I, I said I was going to kill you, but I really didn't. None of these things are said. Why? Well, Jacob has swindled. 
Esau has promised violence. They both know what they've done. So then how did they make what was right wrong or wrong right? Well, it was first found in the restitution. Here are these gifts. They are my payment. Here's my prostration before the ground. Here are my, my words of meekness. Know that I am truly repentant. And even though there are no words in that culture, everything that Jacob has done screams, please forgive me. Everything in that culture, we're reading a Middle Eastern culture, everything that is being done in this picture is screaming to Esau, please, brother, forgive me. Therefore, we must not conclude that because there are no words of repentance here, therefore, in our own lives, we don't need to say any words of repentance. You know, saying I'm sorry goes a long way, doesn't it? Not just, look, sorry. But going to that individual, telling them, you know what, I know what I have done. I am so deeply and desperately sorry for the way that I have offended and wronged you. And do you know that that will not only be good for them, it will be good for you. There's a sense of uh, the monkey being taken off of your back, if you will. The weight being lifted off of your shoulders. Once you say, I've wronged you and I am sorry. When David was caught red-handed for committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband Uriah, he repented. He repented desperately, and we need only read the book of Psalms to read how important it is to repent with words. But we are not just to show or say with words that we are repented. John the Baptist called the Pharisees of his day to reproduce fruit in keeping with repentance, which means this. If you have truly turned from your sin, then live in such a way that, you, that says you've turned from your sin. Don't just say, I'm sorry, and then go back and do it again. Show the fruit. The fruit is that you don't do it again. That you are truly a different person. And do you know, even with that said, we will be imperfect repenters. We will say we are truly sorry for the wrong that we have done. And guess what? We'll do it again. Maybe not to the same degree, but listen, even sometimes maybe to an even greater degree. I thought you repented of this. I really did. But I am in a wrestling match. It's harder than you know. Just because you're wrestling with a different sin than someone else. Don't judge them for the fact that they may be having a harder time with that wrestling match than you're having with yours. We will be imperfect repenters. But that's why the scriptures call us not just to repent one time in our lives. But to be people who are always repenting. Who are always and will always be repenting of our sins. Not just a one time. I repented 20 years ago. No, you repent today and you repent tomorrow and you will continue to repent until you go home. I'm sure that many of us, when we are on our deathbed, we will repent of our sins by saying, Lord, I'm sorry for not praying enough. I'm sorry for not reading the word enough. I'm sorry for not sharing the gospel enough. There will always be things, even until our last breath, that we will say, God, have mercy on me. Jacob shows that he has truly repented for the way that he has wronged his brother. And he, listen, he urges his brother, accept this gift 
or this payment of restitution. There is a moment, uh, this moment is, is a moment I think all of us have experienced in our lives, haven't we? Where we are attempting to offer a gift and the person is saying, no, 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 I can't accept it. No, please take it. No, I can't accept it. I insist, please really take it. You guys know those moments. My mom does that to me often. Was, take this money. I can't take the money. Please take the money. And she'll end up forcefully sticking it in my pocket or sneaking it into a bag somewhere. But this was payment for sin. And Esau is reluctant to take it. I have no need for these gifts. And I wonder if you see the irony there because in the 32nd chapter, Jacob is wrestling with God and, and he will not let God go until God blesses him. And now in this 33rd chapter, Jacob won't let Esau go. Until Esau allows Jacob to bless him. Take this blessing. And there's something might, that might be missed here culturally. Restitution. He's trying to pay a price for the offense according to the custom of the day. If Esau does not accept it, then there is no forgiveness. If Esau does accept it, it's a sign that he forgives his brother. And according to the law of that custom, if Esau accepts the gift, he is therefore no longer allowed to ever bring up the issue ever again. It's though it never happened. They can't be sitting at, at dinner one day and say, I just got to get it off my chest. You know what you did 20 years ago? That was really messed up, man. Not allowed. As far as the two parties were concerned, if the gift is accepted after it has been given, it no longer exists. Brothers and sisters, we must do all within our power to be at peace with all men. Listen to this. All men? All men. That's exactly what Paul calls the Romans to in, Ro in chapter 12 of the 18th verse. If possible, on your part, Paul says, live at peace with all men. As far as it depends on you. What does this mean? He means exactly what it says. Do your part to ensure that you do not intentionally offend anyone. As far as you're concerned, do everything you can to not offend. And don't we have to you, uh, be watchful of our words, don't we? Th that means we've got to be wise with our words, that we must be accurate with our words, not assuming things about certain people. We must always strive to believe the best about people. I don't know you. You don't know me. We must be people that promote peace with our words and with our actions. People that encourage one another to love and good deeds. And yet, we will have conflict with unbelievers. Let me ask you, how do you handle conflict with an unbeliever? Imperfectly. I know that I'm, just a few weeks ago, had an imperfect interaction with an unbeliever. And I wish to God I had that moment back. I believe that we are able to communicate the gospel and the sinners need to repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ and shows that we are saying what we are saying, not because we are your enemy, but because we used to be you. And we so desperately want to see you saved and come into the kingdom of God. 
And I think that we can do these things in saying, I'm not saying these things to harm you, dear one. I'm saying these things because I actually do love you. And it is my great hope that you turn from your sins and know the sweetness found in Christ. Imagine that appeal to an unbeliever. They can at least say, well, you're the kindest Christian I've ever met. I don't believe the gospel, but you're pretty nice. As far as you can do, insofar as it depends on you. What a great blessing that would be to our witness as Christians in the world. They can at least say, I don't agree with him, but that is an upstanding man or woman, and I respect them. What about for our brothers and sisters? Paul tells the church in Galatia, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Here it is. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6.10. Do good to all men. And then Paul makes a Paul makes a Paul takes it to another level. And especially to those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Especially to those who are, another verse says, another version says, of the family of faith. Brothers and sisters, sisters, do we create distance between ourselves? Do we only consider ourselves to be united with our brothers and sisters between 10 and 12 on Sunday, on the Lord's Day? And that our unity is only that we are sitting together? And some of us will come in and say, he's sitting over there, I'll sit over there. Tonight we will have a fellowship meal. And it is one of those monthly organized opportunities for you and I to begin to practice being good to someone. To show care for their spiritual soul and for your spiritual sibling. How will you speak to them tonight? Will you dismiss their presence? Will you go beyond doing good? God bless you. Do you ask yourselves, what am I going to say to them? We have nothing in common. You have Christ in common. You've both been brought from darkness to light. When was the last time you asked someone sincerely, how can I pray for you? One of your brothers and sisters, how can I pray for you? Or are you only concerned with yourself? When was the last time you made time for your spiritual sibling? We make time in the world, all the time in the world, for those who are not our spiritual siblings. We'll go out of our ways for them. Paul says, do more for the church. In what ways are you doing good to those who are of the family of faith? That is the question and even the command that comes from Paul, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, which means it comes from God. Doing good and having right relationships is so important to Christ that if we have any broken relationships, Christ says, before you come and even worship me, go get that right. Leave your gift. Go make it right. Come back. It's that important. And brothers and sisters, the church must not be divided. And if it is, I will not have it said of me that I did not at least do everything in my power to make it right.
I reached out. I sent a text. I tried to call. I at least did everything that I could. I encourage you again. Think of ways that you might do good to the family of faith. Here's one of the, here's one of the ways that you can start doing good to the family of faith. Join us tonight. Just show up. I guarantee you someone will have a good interaction with you. Be present when you can so that we can have an opportunity to do good to one another. Moving on very quickly. Jacob has been changed, right? You know who else has been changed, it seems? seems like Esau's been changed. In some ways, Esau's transformation is at least as, just as remarkable as Jacob's. It's at least unexpected. He seems to be loving. Jacob seems to be nice and even hospitable. Join us. Come back home with us. Jacob even likens seeing his brother to the encounter that he had with God the night before. He says to Jacob, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. (laughs) How so? Because the night before, God gave him mercy. And now he's seeing his brother Esau, and Esau has given him mercy. He knows he deserves to die. Esau is hugging and reconciling him. Now this causes us to ask, was Esau a man of faith? The answer is no, he is not. How do we know? Remember what Rebecca said about Esau. Go away, Jacob. Esau will get over it. He's a man of passions that ebb and flow. He's up one day and then down the next. It'll be okay. Well, mom was right. Esau's fine. No problem. Esau's even a self-made man, if you will. He's operated without the blessing of God, and now he's got a militia of 400 men, and he doesn't need any of the things that Jacob is offering him. He's apparently so wealthy that he doesn't need the blessing. But would you notice three times in this chapter, Jacob evokes the name of the Lord, and Esau not once. Three times Jacob said, God has done this. God has been good. God has blessed. And not once has Jacob said, yes, praise be to God. Or Esau, as he said, praise be to God. One Puritan said, how far a child of God can backslide and still be a child of God, and how far an unbeliever can show virtues and still remain unconverted. Which means... Some of you know unbelievers who are a lot nicer than believers, don't you? Don't be fooled. We think that Christians are the nicer. And non-Christians are the nastier people, right? It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. You've been in church, or you just have to be alive long enough to know that isn't true. should be true. Sometimes, though, the unbeliever puts us to shame by their virtues, don't they? Can I just encourage you, people of God, saints of God, those who have been brought, bought by the grace of God, do not be outdone by an unbeliever in showing kindness, in showing mercy, in showing gentleness. Do not be outdone by the unbeliever. And then do not let your excuse when the unbeliever calls you on your faith, well, I'm not perfect. You're right, you're not perfect. And they can see it. 
Will we fail? Yes, we will. But when we do, we must go to them who are watching and saying, listen, forgive me for the unchristlike way that I have acted. That will be a great witness. They'll at least know that you're honest about yourself. Esau was nicer, more mature, but not converted. Esau thinks he has enough. But he doesn't realize he does not have the very thing that he needs, which is Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's move on to our third and final point, which will be very quick. There is a necessary separation. This is the final verses, 12 through 20. Uh, there's a very strange dialogue that takes place between Jacob and Esau. Esau is saying to Jacob, come, come to Seir. Come home with me. There's enough room. Bring all of your family. Seir's in Edom. Let's go to Edom. Jacob says, no, my brother, we can't keep up. If we move at, at your pace, the, the cattle, they'll die. My family, they'll be exhausted. I'll stay with them and I'll move at their pace. Esau says, well, let me send some of my men to help you. They'll pick up the slack. Jacob replies, no, that's okay. You go on. We'll move at this pace, brother, and I'll see you there. Don't you hate sometimes when you invite someone? Ah, maybe I'll see you there. You're going to go or you're not going to go. I imagine there was probably a long stare between the brothers because they are realizing something at that particular moment. Jacob's not coming with us and Esau, I'm not going. And they seem to know that. It's at this point where the commentators are divided. Some believe that Jacob is being Jacob again. He's being twisted. He's being deceiving again. While others are just saying, no, there, there's actually at least some uncertainty here because the believer is leaving us with that tension. What is going on? Well, let me say to you this. Whatever the case may be, Jacob can't go. He can't go to Edom. Why? Because Edom is outside of the promised land. Jacob made a vow to God that he would return to Bethel. That he would build an altar there. That he would return to the promised land and take hold of that which God has given him. Therefore, he can't go with Esau. I don't believe that Jacob was being Jacob. Rather, I think that they both had an understanding, which is why Jacob is saying, please, show favor to your servant. In Jacob's own way, in this Middle Eastern way of talking, Jacob is kindly, notice that, he's kindly saying to his brother, so as to add no more offense to that which has already been done, Dear brother, we've made peace. Now let me go my way. And you go your way. See, there's no embarrassing words there. There's no clashing. There's no enmity. And Jacob knows that he dare not go with his brother. Because if he does, he goes in the opposite direction of God's promises. Therefore, whatever pain may have been caused by, once again, separating this reconciled relationship it has to be done and it appears that they will not even see each other again until the 35th chapter when they are at their father's funeral jacob knew that he had to go and listen in a different direction of his own flesh and blood now some of us would be happy to go into another direction of our own flesh and blood but we must not 
love and care for our family more than we care for Christ and his promises and his commands. We cannot make an idol of our family. Our family must be important. Love them. Share the gospel with them. Do good to them. But they must not be more important to you than Christ. The Lord Jesus said, anyone who loves father, mother, brother, or sister more than me is not worthy of me. If there is anyone that you would exalt over Christ, over and above Christ, then you're not worthy of Christ. And they are both at this point, they're releasing each other. They cannot coexist even though they have made peace with one another. That's fine. Jacob was the seed of the woman. Esau was the seed of the serpent. But he's so nice. But he's rejected Christ. Reconciliation does not always result in us living side by side. We've reconciled. That don't mean we're best friends now. We've made peace and that's enough. So that if it was asked of me, uh, what do you say about him? Uh, we are at peace with one another. There is no more to say. It could be that Jacob even did go to Seir at one point or another, but it's just not recorded for us. It could be that he was speaking kindly to his brother so that he would not once again threaten the peace that had been made. Here's the main point, guys, in all of this. One is at home in Canaan and one feels at home outside of Canaan. What about you? Where are you at home? Are you more settled and comfortable on Monday? Or can you not wait for the Lord's day? God, bring the Lord's day Sabbath quickly. It's funny, as I was preparing this Lord's Day morning, I, I was saying to myself, my whole week is spent preparing for the Lord's Day. Everything that I'm doing in terms of uh, what my family will do, what vacations we will take, they are all centered around how will this affect our Lord's Day worship? Are you relieved when it is time to gather for worship? Or are you relieved when we disperse? Are you looking forward to our time of gathering again tonight? Or do you take your break during the, the day and say, why do we have to have a five o'clock service? Brothers and sisters, whatever the response is, I pray that you bring it before the Lord and say, Lord, if it is not a positive one to the Lord's day, help me there. And if it is a positive one towards the Lord's day, God, keep me there. These two, have been, these two men separate. They go on their own way. And this is earthly reconciliation. Do you know that our reconciliation with God is much different? In this narrative, it is Jacob who makes the first step toward Esau. In our reconciliation with God, God takes the first step toward us. We were the ones who offended God. We were the ones who violated God. And we had no desire to reconcile with our maker. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you and I once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2. We may have never read this story before of the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. But we are more familiar with this story than we realize, aren't we? Because this is, this is what has happened to us as God has drawn us near to himself. I wonder if you, you recall where you've heard these words before put together in this way. While he was still a long way off, he saw him and felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him and kissed him. Where have you heard that before? You know well these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses these words to describe the prodigal son who returns home to his father after living in a far off country. And the Lord Jesus Christ takes this idea of Jacob and Esau and he multiplies it times 100. He connects it to a father and to a son. We were those who lived in a far off country. And God the Father did not wait for us to come to him. He came running to us. He did not wait for us to pay back what we have owed. We could make no restitution. The Father comes to us, his wayward children. He shows compassion to us. He is merciful to us. And he will not hear anything of anything being repaid. Instead, he says, bring out a robe. Put a ring on his finger. My son who was lost has now come home. We are the prodigals. But we have been given a place of prominence in the house of God because of the mercy of God. Therefore, we should live our lives prostrate, low before God. Because we know everything we have, we do not deserve. And yet God has been merciful and gracious enough to still give it. God has reconciled us through his son, Jesus Christ. There's no way that we can make it right. The only way that it can be made right is if we trust in Christ alone. If we repent of our sins and place our faith in him. Then that broken relationship between us and God is made right by faith in Christ. Dear ones, have you been reconciled to God this morning through Christ? If you have not, do so. Turn from your sins. Place your faith in Christ. Be reconciled unto God. Let's pray.